We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello to everyone listening to the Planet Mask Podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Melissa Thiel, who's the chairperson behind the Sherman Riot of 1930 historical marker. So this was really just a conversation I originally wanted to have just because I kind of saw Melissa in a few local DFW articles kind of related to this historical initiative. And honestly, you know, for people that know me, they'll kind of know that, you know, I love different kind of watching different documentaries related to different historical situations. And, you know, it kind of always reminds me of just kind of a lot of just the historical moments that kind of lead to really just our current past. And, you know, a lot of stuff that, you know, possibly happens in the past locally that we don't even really think of or kind of, uh, you know, pay acknowledgement to. So thank you again, Melissa, to, you know, come on and not just talk about your own personal experiences related to this organization, but what you're kind of doing to have this uh, historical marker created. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's It's been a journey. There's been a, a lot to- of talking about the 1930 Sherman riot. You know, our community where I'm from for 91 years has painstakingly tried to keep it a secret. And, you know, the more you try to tell someone not to talk about something, the more they talk about it. And that's kind of what's happened here. You know, the, the public officials said, don't talk about it. And everybody's talking about it. <laughs> so uh, it's been it's been a journey, but it's it's been an honor to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. So I guess I wanted to kind of first ask about, you know, what led you to, um, I guess maybe like your kind of historical enjoyment. Were you like always as a, like a kid, always like a huge history buff or, you know, how did that start out? Yeah, I've always enjoyed history, but the first really memory I have of being interested in history is in fifth grade. We watched a video while I was in school um, of the Holocaust, and I remember it so vividly. It was Holocaust victims being bulldozed into a grave, and I just remember that so vividly. And I, I remember thinking, how could people be so cruel? And it wasn't like cruel, like you have a Charles Manson who, you know, this this kind of outsider who's cruel. This was a whole group of people with no compassion for other humans. And that kind of got the ball rolling at that young age of wanting to understand why. And as I got older, I really looked into like civil rights and being from the South growing up, I wasn't around hardly any black people. It's I'm in a small rural community. And so that just wasn't something I was exposed to. And my dad is a preacher. So he would go around and preach. And one story that stuck out to me is he was in Mississippi and he was preaching and he was preaching to black people. And and some people at this church said, no, you can't do that. You can't preach to black people. We don't want them at our church. And they actually threatened my dad's life. They they came up to him and said, hey, we're going to blow up where you're staying. And it was it was a big thing. And I remember hearing that and I was 
so mad because I'm a Christian. And I'm like, that is not the way we're supposed to talk and, and be like, and that, that's just everything we should be against. So those are some of the things that really got me interested in history. Um, and then just growing up, you know, as I, I got older, I had I had some issues with alcoholism. That's that's a whole another probably podcast, but uh, it was bad. Um, there were points that I didn't think I was going to make it, and, and I got through that. And I remember, you know, telling God that I wouldn't waste it. I wouldn't waste my sobriety. And that's when I went back to school. And when I went back to school, I decided to go back for history. And you know, I got my undergrad as a uh, in a history, and then I kept going, and I got my master's in public history from Texas Women's mm-hmm. University. And I think everything in my life from being raised a preacher's kid to seeing some of the racism that came with that to being taught in fifth grade about some of this and then obstacles in my life kind of kicked me in gear to get my life together. And it all kind of, you know, landed at this one point in my life where it all has just came together. Mm-hmm. It's kind of wild to, I guess, get the kind of the differences between maybe you're growing up in an educational system that didn't acknowledge things like slavery or kind of racism in, you know, our history, but you kind of had parents or you had a father that um, obviously kind of went against the grain on being able to preach towards marginalized communities. Did you have like, you know, was it similar amongst your friends or peers? Did they have like, I guess, upbringings or family members that possibly, you know, kind of taught them about stuff like that or, you know, helped them become more open minded? Or were you around like friends or family that, you know, weren't the same way? Really growing up, you know, in schools, it just wasn't talked about. We just didn't talk about it. I think in my entire school, I grew up, uh, Tom Bean is the little school I went to. There might have been two black uh, kids in the school. And, um, you know, I don't remember anybody saying anything racist or any overt racism, but we just didn't talk about it. You know, in my home, we didn't talk about it a whole lot. But I knew if I ever said anything derogatory, like if the N-word ever came out of my mouth, I would no longer be alive. Like it was understood that you don't talk that way. So there was an understanding of how you treat people. But as far as like in the community and stuff, it just, it wasn't talked about. Um, You know, I grew up a little bit later than some of the real racist times. You know, I was born in the 80s. So going to school in the 90s, um, it was just almost like, we're just not going to talk about it. So when I learned about it, it was, it it was such a shock to my system. I think I was very guarded growing up. And I, I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I guess like into the topic of, um, you know, kind of learning about those subjects, I remember kind of reading on, you know, your experiences with your grandmother, you know, kind of leading into kind of uh, learning about the wild situations of, you know, uh, Texas and uh, the regions that make it up. And I was kind of wondering on like, you know, uh if you wanted to kind of expand on your experiences uh, with your grandmother when it came to talking about history. Yeah, my grandmother loved history. I think I get some of that from her. I wish she was still here. I think she'd be very proud of, of what I'm doing. But she would take me to cemeteries and we'd go and visit family members' graves. And she had a, I believe it was her grandfather. His name is Uriah Umphress. And he was killed. And she believes that he was murdered. And other family members say he got kicked in the head by a horse. So she always had wondered what happened to him. So I think he died in like the 1920s. So I wanted to research that for her so she would know what happened. And I said, Grandma, why can't we find the death certificates? And she said, well, they all got burned up in the courthouse fire. I was like, what, you know, what fire? She's like, well, the courthouse burned down in 1930. There was a riot and the courthouse burned down. But that's really all she said about it. Um, 
I didn't know everything I know now, but you know, she just kind of explained that she couldn't research her family because of the riot. Um, but we would go to different graves. We talk about people. We had people that fought in the Confederacy in my family. Um, I don't know if it was a great, great uncle or if it was a grandfather, but, um, a relative was actually a Confederate soldier and went to a prisoner, a union prisoner of war camp and survived it. Um, so there was that talk about fighting in the Confederacy. And I did have family members that did that, but my grandma was very open about talking about those different things. But when it came to the courthouse, you know, and, and the lynching, she never used the word lynching. Um, she never talked about the black man. It was all about the courthouse. So I was only getting pieces of that story. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask on like uh, when like this entire subject came out of kind of like learning about history and uh, kind of the family line. Have you guys ever done something like Ancestry.com or something like that? Yeah, I actually have an Ancestry account and I got it while my grandmother was still alive and I made her do a DNA test because she just loved history so much. So I really got it for her. And that's where, where, where we researched a lot of our ancestors. And that's how we found out about the guy that was a Confederate soldier in the prisoner of war camp. So yeah, we've done a lot of our research through Ancestry, but um, anyone from Grayson County knows when you try to get death certificates or birth certificates before 1930, they're really hard to come by. And they're hard to, in Grayson County, they're all hard to come by because of that, the the right. burning? Mm-hmm. Right, because all those records were in the courthouse. So I think there were some things that were saved, but a lot of it was just completely destroyed. So doing any kind of research prior to 1930 is really difficult. And did you want to, I guess, like dive into the 1930s uh, Sherman riot? Because I was kind of wondering on, you know, I knew like some of the information behind it, but honestly, kind of, uh, you know, when I emailed about kind of doing this interview, uh, I ended up reading into it again. And I guess I just didn't know the details of the actual brutality of like everything behind it. Um, You know, I knew I knew basically the lynching, but did not know just every single detail and just kind of being able to read upon it, it, you know, got worse and worse. So I don't know if you wanted to kind of bring up the story and maybe just uh, for anyone that doesn't know about like the details behind it. Yeah. So in 1930, you know, we're, we're rotten Jim Crow. Um, so there's a lot of rach- racial hatred going on and, and Grayson County's in the South. So that played a, a major role. And there was also the onset of the Great Depression. So that heightened tensions even more in this area because a lot of the poor white people were vying for jobs that the poor black people also had like the farm labor jobs position. So there was this very big pull of, of jobs and trying to get jobs and the hate toward the, the black community members was, was even, I would say worse than what it was just on a regular Jim Crow scale. It was bad, but the great depression heightened it even more. So we're in 1930, May of 1930. And there's a black man named George Hughes. So he was in Grayson County. He hadn't been there a real long time, but he was a farm laborer, which you know, a lot of times that's that's the jobs uh, that people could get. So he was working on a farm of uh, a couple named Drew, Drew and Pearl Farlow. And the Farlows were not rich landowners. I think they were running the farm. So they were not well off. But he had worked there on the farm. And then George Hughes came to the Farlows and said, hey, you owe me $6 in back pay. I need to get paid. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but in 1930, it, you know, it was, a, it was an okay amount of money. So uh, the wife... Pearl Farlow answered the door and said, hey, we don't, I don't have your money. You need to come back when my husband's home. Well, she alleges that he came back a short time later with a gun, came into the house, tied her up, and sexually assaulted her. Um, the story goes that she had a small child there who ran out. One of the neighbors saw the child 
running, called the police. There's also another story that nobody saw the child, but the child was found hiding in a barn. But somehow the child left the house. Pearl Farlow freed herself because George Hughes went to go look for the child. George, uh, Pearl Farlow freed herself and went and got help from a neighbor. That's her account. Uh, the police came, found George Hughes in a field, um, arrested him and took him in. There's a, there's a few different accounts. Now, people always ask me if George Hughes is guilty. Um, mm. So if you believe Pearl Farlow, then that's the story that she told. There's other belief that they were poor, the Farlows, and they didn't want to pay George Hughes the $6. So this story was concocted. That's another rumor that went around at the time. And the last um, thing that went around, and some black newspapers printed this, was that George Hughes and Pearl Farlow were having a consensual relationship and got caught. Like maybe that child had came in and caught them. Um, mm. I think that that's going to be lost to history. But, you know, in 1930, when a black man was accused of raping a white woman, he, he was guilty in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of the justice system. He was, he was a dead man walking as soon as that accusation happened. So George Hughes was arrested. They took him to Gainesville and then to McKinney. They, they knew not to bring him directly back into Sherman. Uh, a couple of days later, a group formed at the Sherman jail or the Grayson County jail and tried to get in. And the sheriff actually came in and let this small group look through the jail to show them that George Hughes wasn't there. So he was trying to calm things down. And even after they knew that this was all starting to, to get bigger and people were getting mad, they still brought George Hughes back to Grayson County, back to Sherman on May 9th for his trial. Which, why they did that, I don't know why they didn't do a change of venue, but they didn't. Um, so George Hughes was brought back into Sherman on May 9th. And as that trial begun, the mob just started forming around the around the courthouse, about 5,000 people were there uh, from all over. And as the court proceeded, you know, the procedures got started, they were coming up the stairs and the uh, Texas Rangers had been called in. So Frank Hamer, he was a very famous Texas Ranger. He killed Bonnie and Clyde. So he was there and a few other Rangers were there and they were using tear gas and they were you know, firing above the head of the um, crowd, trying to get the crowd out of the courtroom. But it was just it was just chaos. So eventually they had to evacuate the courtroom. So you could see ladders being put up and they were getting the people out of the courtroom. Well, George Hughes had to make a choice. Is he going to go out and face the mob? Or is it going to be locked in this fireproof vault, hopefully, until things calm down? And he chose the vault. So the rangers put him in the vault with a like a, a pail of, of water, thinking he'll have some water if it, he's in there too long. But George Hughes never left that vault. Um, somebody threw glass, or broke the glass of a window downstairs at the tax assessor's office, and then they started a fire and the courthouse went up in flames. It was made of a lot of wood on the inside, and it just went up quickly. And everybody was evacuating, but George Hughes, he was stuck in that vault. So they set fire to the courthouse, and everybody had to be evacuated through the windows, but George Hughes was put in the vault. So the fire department came, but every time they laid their hoses down, the mob would cut their hoses, so they would not let them put the fire out. Um, the police were there as well, but they were just directing traffic the whole time. If it, there was nothing they could do. The mob had complete control of the situation. So finally, the National Guard was called in and the National Guard came to try to stop the mob and the mob attacked the National Guard. People were throwing stuff at them. They were taking their weapons. I mean, it was just chaos. There was a couple of National Guardsmen that got hurt really bad, um, luckily, luckily to be alive. So they they went back to the jail. So the Grayson County Jail kind of became a headquarters for the National Guard and the police. Everybody was scared to leave and go to the courthouse because the mob had just taken over. So 
by that evening, the, the courthouse had completely burned down. So, but the mob, they weren't, they weren't done. So as soon as the courthouse had, bur- had cooled down enough, they started to try to retrieve Hughes's body out of that vault. Uh, a lot of them believed he wasn't in there. So they wanted to make sure they had him. So they used mm-hmm. a torch. They used dynamite a couple of times. And they finally blew a hole in the side of the vault and they got his body out. And there's a couple of different scenarios, you know, eyewitness accounts. They got his body out and they dumped him. They threw him out and he landed on the ground. So one um, account says that he was he was dead. He suffocated in the vault. Another mm-hmm. is that he had a major head wound from the dynamite explosion and that his body was still warm. So maybe that explosion is what killed him and he survived being in the vault with the fire. And the third account was uh, someone that said they saw him breathing after they threw him out, but not conscious. So mm-hmm. it sounds more, most likely he probably died while he was in the vault. I can't imagine living through that in there, but um, he, he was injured either before or after by that explosion. So not exactly sure the exact moment he died. Um, another account says after they got his body out, they hung him from a tree at the courthouse. That's in two different sources. Some sources don't have that. So he could have been hung at the courthouse in a tree then. And then they decided, they said, let's let's move him to the inward town. So in Sherman at that time, there was a really, you know, amazing black business district. Kind of, it reminds me of what happened in Tulsa a little bit. You know, Tulsa had their Black Wall Street in the early 1920s. Well, Sherman had Mulberry Street in 1930. And it wasn't as big or on the same scale, but it had doctors and lawyers and dentists undertakers, barbers. It was just a really successful black business district, especially during 1930 and especially during the Great Depression. It caused a lot of jealousy with the white people when they saw the black people, you know, doing well with nice houses and manicured lawns and these businesses. It didn't set well with the poor whites. So they took George Hughes's body and they chained him to the back of the car and they drug him to Mulberry Street where that black business district was. And they said, you know, eyewitnesses say that his body just bounced along the road and, and the, the, the crowd just parted so they could they could get over there. And they got to Mulberry Street where that black business district was. And they took George Hughes and they hung him from a tree in front of that black business district. They mutilated him. They cut off his genitals. And then they set him on fire and he was burning. And as he was burning, the mob then destroyed the entire black business district. It was just set in flames. Um, black people in the community were just, they were running for their lives. They could be seen hiding in pig pens, hiding in the woods, trying to get to white people's houses that they knew to hide, going to Denison along the railroad tracks, anything just not to be caught by the white mob. Um, notes were left on black people's houses saying, hey, if you don't get out of town, we're going to kill you. And notes were also left on, at white businesses that employed black people saying, hey, fire all your black employees and replace them with white workers or we're going to burn your business down. So you could see that there. this was a lot, not so much about George Hughes being you know, accused of rape as about getting the black people out of Sherman and, um, and destroying their livelihood. That was the end result. And that's what happened. That was the goal. And they succeeded. Uh, eventually, martial law was placed in Grayson County for two weeks. So the National Guard came. They put you know machine guns around every corner of the square. You couldn't go into by the black businesses or black homes um, anymore. Somebody, part of the mob, tried to burn down the Fred Douglas School, the black school, but they were caught by the National Guard. So it was just chaos. And if if martial law hadn't happened so quickly, and we had so many National Guards, they came from Dallas. Um, it would have been so much worse. There would have been so much more death if, if that hadn't happened so quickly. 
Mm-hmm. What was like the I mean, after like the martial law in Sherman? What was kind of the I guess the after effects of you know of that when you're kind of talking about the notes put on the doors and uh, of houses and like the small businesses um, that were threatened if they don't replace their workers with you know white workers. Was there like after that? Was there like a lot of people moving out of Sherman? Was there you know a lot of businesses replacing their workers? You know how many people? I guess we're hit we're hit with the after effects. Yeah, so a lot of the black families they just fled and left. So an interesting story. Uh, I've met a lady named Yolanda Boyd uh, during the process of remembering this history. And her family, I think it was her great grandmother, they fled during the riot and they went to McKinney. And their stories is very similar to a lot of people. They went to McKinney and Dallas, just getting away from Sherman. So. Her family left in 1930, and Yolanda is the first member of her family to come back. And she got a Habitat for Humanity house in in Sherman. And her story is amazing because she came back, and now she tells other Black people that maybe want to come back to Sherman that it's safe to come back. So that kind of showed you after 91 years, you're still having to have an advocate saying it's safe now. So, so many people, you know, they left and there was an insurance clause that said you could not get insurance on any destruction that was done by a riot. So none of those businesses were covered at all. So those businesses just died. That was it. A few of the entrepreneurs, the black entrepreneurs, they went in their home and they did business out of their home, but most of them just, they just left. And that meant, if you think about it, 1930 Jim Crow the, the, the black citizens couldn't just go to a different store in town because they were white owned. So they would have to go to like Denison, which is about 10 miles and not everybody had a car. So it just completely crippled the black community. And then the city of Sherman was known as the Athens of Texas at the time. It had a lot of colleges and churches and it was, it was growing. It was supposed to be the next Dallas Fort Worth and that growth stopped dead in its tracks in 1930. We're just now getting that growth back, but it completely devastated the community and, and the black people. They Most of them fled. And if the people that stayed did it very fearfully. And I didn't know about like when you're talking about people that fled on, you know, what, so was like Dallas and McKinney, like the main, I guess like 1930 spots when it came to I guess like African-Americans fleeing from there to new areas or what were like some of the other, I guess, Texas regions that were, I I guess, known for, um, you know, upcoming African-American communities. You know, I'm not sure exactly in 1930. I know McKinney's been mentioned and then Dallas has been mentioned quite a bit. Um, I feel like it was anywhere not in this rural community because Grayson County is very rural and the towns around it, even today, are very rural. There's not like a big city feel. Sherman was the biggest they had. So a lot of people fled to places where they could feel protected. They had bigger black, you know, black communities that could protect them. So McKinney, I've heard a lot. And then Dallas are the the two places that I've heard the most. Mm-hmm. And I remember like uh, kind of seeing about like recent historical, um, I guess, recent events um, within like the United States being a huge factor onto like your revitalized interest into like the 1930s uh, Sherman riots. What was uh, I, I guess what were like the main news topics that I, I guess like made you very interested in like marginalized communities or like the. I guess, brutality and the the brutal history of marginalized communities. Right. I'd always studied about 
you know, civil rights and the freedom riders and the sit-ins and, you know, Martin Luther King and, and what they went through. And one thing that came up in college all the time, and everybody always asked this, was why didn't anybody do anything? Why is everybody sitting on the sidelines? Everybody, you know, is in their high, on their high horse, sitting in a comfortable classroom saying, why didn't they do anything? So I saw what happened to George Floyd um, when he was murdered in May of 2020. And I was just, I was horrified. And you know, Maude Aubrey had been before that. And I was like, when is enough enough? And to just see that and to see the people on the sidelines trying to get that police officer to get off of him. And he just wouldn't, he didn't care. And that was in that moment that, you know, I thought I could sit here and be mad and say something on Facebook or I could do something. And that's when I was like, I'm not going to sit here on the sidelines and do nothing. I have the skills of a historian. I know about this riot, or at least I, at that point, I knew of it, not the details. And I thought this is a history that has been overlooked intentionally. And I'm not going to stand by and let it be ignored anymore because obviously we're not learning from our history. So we need to do a better job of teaching it. So that was the moment after I saw what happened to George Floyd that I thought, I, I can't be one of those people <laughs> that just sits back and doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And is there any like, I guess, advice or tips you give to anyone that, you know, maybe want to start kind of like getting kind of like you said, like getting off the sidelines and maybe contributing more to, I guess, major, you know, major events that possibly help out marginalized communities? Because it, it kind of is wild. Like, you know, when I think of kind of when you learn a history, like you're saying, with kind of the sidelines with, uh, you know, kind of the, the the craziest thing I learned about like the American Revolution was like forty percent of people, you know, weren't patriots or loyalists. They just didn't care. They were totally neutral in this situation. So, like, uh, you know, I was kind of wondering on, you know, if someone wants to maybe help out or maybe they feel powerless in these type of political, you know, huge national debates. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is there any advice you might give them on being able to contribute? Yeah, for me, um, I didn't realize this would turn into what it turned into. But my first thing I did, it was to get a Texas historical marker for a historical event. They are thousands of historical markers. It wasn't a big thing. It wasn't some great achievement I was trying to to do. It was small. So I would give the advice, look in your community. Is there something that needs to be talked about? Is there something you could do locally? And if there's something, if there's a need, start working. Because I guarantee you, if you're working to do something right, people will join you. And that's what happened with me. I, people told me in Grayson County, I will never get this done. And I've had more support from the people in an all Republican you know, area. There are no Democrats in office in Grayson County. And I have had more support than you can imagine. So look around you, see what's needed, and then get to work. People will join you. And then um, my last piece of advice, we don't quit. Because so many times people start these projects and it gets hard and they fade away. And that happened here in Grayson County. Um, more, There was three people before me that tried to talk about this history. Started in the 1960s, ended in about the 1980s. Um, so don't give up. It, things don't happen quickly, so, but find something that's a need, get to work, get people to help you and then, and then stick with it. Mm-hmm. And what were, I guess when you came into the process, like what is the logistics when it comes to applying for a historical marker? You know, is it very, is there a lot of bureaucracy in that type of situation? Do you deal with the community? Do you deal with the state? Like, um, you know, who are you dealing with in those situations? 
Normally, it's not a complicated process at all. It got complicated with ours because of what we were talking about, but normally it isn't. So your first, you get basically you need three approvals. The first comes from your local historical commission. So in our case, it would be the Grayson County Historical Commission. Uh, you write a research paper. They look at it, make sure it's accurate. And then the second approval you need is permission from the landowner. So wherever you're going to put it, they have to say you could put it there. In our case, it needed to go at the courthouse because that's where this happened. So we had to get permission from politicians. So the Grayson County judge and commissioners to place it at the courthouse because they're the landowners. So that was a second approval. And then the third approval comes from the Texas Historical Commission. After they get the research paper, you know, the permission from the landowner, then the Texas Historical Commission looks at it, says, yes, this is, you know, deserving of a historical marker. Here's the wording. And then that's the process. Um, it's not difficult normally, but in our case, it was very difficult. <laughs> mm-hmm. It kind of seemed like when you're talking about that uh, second approval on kind of working with the politicians, that that was possibly the most complicated situation. I, ca- I was kind of wondering on, you know, what is maybe what was like, I guess, the main um, argument made against it as far as people that didn't want to have the historical marker placed? Yeah, so they didn't want to have the historical marker at the courthouse, the idea that we would look bad, you know? Um, So our first approval came from the Grayson County Historical Commission. And I met with the then president, she's not the president anymore, of that historical commission. And she said that she would not approve the marker. She said that George Hughes was not lynched, that he was, it was a desecration of a body. So she didn't know what lynching was. And then she said, if I brought this forward in front of the historical commission, I would be embarrassed. And that lit a fire under me. (laughs) I was like, okay. So I went forward with it and they made us have a public meeting at the Grayson County Historical Commission level so to get the public's input. And that's never happened before with the marker and it's never happened since. The game plan was they, the Grayson County Historical Commission president and this county judge that was talking with her thought that if we had the public come and speak, they would shut it down and say, we don't want the marker. But instead, 40 people came and they all spoke in favor of the marker. So it completely backfired. But yeah, so we got our first approval. That was our first approval. So that was all crazy. But you're right. That second approval from the landowner, the Grayson County Judge and Commissioners, was the hardest fought battle because now they have it and they have to do something with it. Um, We asked to be on the Commissioner's Court agenda for six months. We asked 22 times for 22 weeks. We had speakers come and speak every week in front of everybody. We would record those and put them on social media. Uh, So we were not going to back down. But one of the commissioners, her name is uh, Phyllis James. She she's the only lady on the uh, commissioner's court. And she said she wanted to look at the victim and not have the name, basically the name of a rapist at the courthouse. Hmm. So. I can't kind of show us the mindset because how can you say George Hughes is a rapist if he never even went to court? And how can you be sure someone, someone, a black man in 1930 was guilty of anything when no matter what he did, he was going to be presumed guilty. So trying to change that mindset was hard. And people said, we don't want a criminal at his name at the courthouse. And we would say, you're missing the point. The point is this man lost his life at the very place that justice is supposed to reign supreme. And then our black business district was completely destroyed. This was historically significant. It doesn't matter if he's guilty or not. You're, you're missing the point. So his guilt came up a lot. That was a thing. And then just the embarrassment of, of having to reconcile with it. 
But it wasn't the black people that had the problem. It was the white leadership that had the problem. And do you have, I guess, like any remarks on that type of mindset when it comes to, like you're originally saying on the mindset of this type of monument will make our city look bad? Because I know like in kind of the DFW area, um, like the main thing that comes to mind, I remembered I did my, uh, you know, a college paper on Fort Worth's Hell's Half Acre, where just kind of the idea of where uh, the city's kind of awkward on like, I-, I guess, bringing up the history of uh, gambling and prostitution and money that helps, you know, the city grow because of, um, you know, kind of a- activities like that. It, so like in your kind of mindset, do you have any remarks on, you know, if a city is, I, I guess, feels weird on acknowledging, you know, past history or, you know, evil history? Yeah, I don't understand that thinking because ignoring it does not make it go away. We have slid it under the surface and it's a volcano about to erupt all the time until they shut it down. They were hoping I would just go away and they'd shut it down for another decade until somebody else came along and wanted to talk about it. But not talking about it doesn't make it make it go away. And I think the county leadership needs to know that they look worse by not recognizing it. We look bad for this in 1930, but we look really bad in 2022 for still hiding it. You know, what looks worse? Mm. So you just look bad all over again. It looks like we haven't learned a thing. So I don't understand that mindset. I, I, I just don't. Um, I don't know if it's just... As a political leader, you're you feel protective. I don't know. I, I just I don't understand. Their excuses were never good excuses. Um, I think too, they thought I would just go away. So by the end, it was just like butting heads. One of us had to back down. And whoever backed mm. down, it was a pride thing. So I think by the end we had dug our heels in and they didn't want to give in and I wasn't gonna give in. So I think backing off just became not an option for either side. Mm-hmm. What's like the, uh, I guess, the political environment in a situation like that right now? Because I would have imagined, um, like in Sherman, are they trying to, I guess, like find, uh, I guess, more politicians that, you know, agree with the public or, you know, what's that kind of like right now? Yeah, it was really interesting because um, that Grayson County is the Grayson County judge and four commissioners that gave us. So the Grayson County judge isn't an actual judge. I thought it was when I first started. He's basically the mayor of the county. And then he has the four commissioners who are basically like the city councilmen. So that was who we fought against. Um, and they kept saying, like one of them said, we represent the majority. We represent the majority. Well, a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, was done by a local newspaper. And they had got hundreds of... Of, of different, you know, communications and think two weren't for the marker. The rest were. So it, nothing they were saying was true. They just weren't going to do it. Um, and the people, this is what has been so amazing because like I said, Grayson County has no Democrats in leadership at all. It's all Republican. It's a very red county. But the people came together, Republican, Democrat, Black Rock, Rich Poor, it didn't matter. And we came to those commissioner court meetings and we stood up and we said, nope, y'all are wrong. We're going to recognize this and we would not let it go. And we crossed those political lines and we stood up for it. And that Mm -hmm. was pretty amazing. If it wasn't for the community saying, hey, we're not we're not putting up with this anymore. Those those political leaders would have kept going. Um, The Grayson County judge, interestingly enough, is up for reelection. And he has had a lot of uh, criminal issues, a lot of DWIs. And he's up for reelection. And uh, there's a gentleman running against him that supports the marker. And uh, he's getting a lot of traction. So I think people are tired of it. I think they're tired of politicians using history as a, as a, as a political game. 
uh, and not looking at it for what it is. There were people that were really hurt in 1930 and it affects our community today. And and to make that a a political issue is frustrating. Mm -hmm. And would there be any like moving forward, there be any projects that you'd be interested in like after um, like this historical marker with like the idea of setting up additional historical markers or, you know, something else involved with, um, I guess, like racial uh, historical quality be of like interest to you? Yeah. So we we keep getting the question, what's next? And we try to say, we got to get the marker in the ground, you know, but so a lot of really cool things have happened. Um, Grace United Methodist Church in Sherman, they started a George Hughes Memorial Scholarship for Grayson County seniors. So that's, mm. that's just, so seniors, so they're going to learn about it and write about it. So it, it helps educate. And the city of Sherman is working with the Equal Justice Initiative to do a marker where the Black Business District once stood. So there's a lot of cool things happening uh, that have resulted from the fight for this Texas historical marker. There is one thing. Um, there was a gentleman that lived in Sherman. His name was William, William J. Durham, and he's a civil rights lawyer. And he saw his, his business burn down. In, in the Sherman Riot of 1930. And William Durham went on to work with Thurgood Marshall on Brown versus Board of Education. He played a pivotal role in dese- desegregating schools. And he was from Sherman and saw his law practice burn in a riot. And his name is not known in the area at all. Thurgood Marshall came to Sherman to work with William Durham and his house is still there. Um, I would love to do some work on him so people know who he is. He should be one of the most well-known people in Grayson County. And I had never heard of him before this. So that's one thing I think all of us are pretty passionate about to maybe try to tell his story next. Mm-hmm. No, but that's, um, you know, that and then also just kind of the school programs on, you know, kids being able to kind of learn about this history. I wanted to like ask, like, as far as I remember kind of my education where, you know, it was kind of like learning, I guess, like the kind of overhead, like historical facts where, they don't get too much into maybe like dark history, but, you know, kind of they I remember them kind of showing more details uh, as they kind of get along. Um, I was kind of wondering on like your perspective when it came to, I guess, like school children and like different grades on like what is I guess like what grade is like appropriate to start teaching, I guess, a real history or just like the actual um, brutal facts of like the local community. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think especially growing up in the South, you know, things are changing and we're learning more, uh, but there's still a fight to uh, to keep some of this quiet for sure, even mm-hmm. on the state and national level. Um, it's funny, I have a, three boys, I have a 16-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old. So my 10-year-old, we were at the Grayson County Courthouse and I was telling him what happened on a 10-year-old level, just that a man was killed here because of the color of his skin and an angry mob had burned down the courthouse and, you know, not knowing if he was paying attention. And then we walked back by the courthouse a couple of weeks later and he said, mom, God loves all of us. He made us all the same after he looked over at the courthouse. So he was, he got it. He was listening. And that I was thinking, they know, they know. So I think at an early age, you know, my son's 10, you can, you can really start talking about some of these things. I didn't get into the gruesome details, but I think by middle school, you know, what impacted me was a fifth grade class. And I saw, I saw the Jewish bodies of the Holocaust and that, that 
impacted me. So I'm thinking, you know, by sixth, seventh grade, they're, you're ready to d- do a deeper dive and introduce it at a young age, you know, carefully, but to know the truth, you know, by mm. middle school. I'm actually, it's really interesting you asked that today, just like two hours ago, I was asked to come talk at a middle school here in uh, Denison that's by Sherman to a bunch of sixth graders. And uh, I don't know if this has been taught there ever. So I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I don't know what parents are going to think. I don't know what I don't know what is going to come from it, but we'll, we'll see. When you kind of like bring up like the idea and I wanted to kind of wrap up the episode, I wanted to ask like with kind of like your upcoming speech with the sixth graders and, you know, kind of your own kids on like their kind of previous education, like on history, I was kind of wondering on like uh, if you're kind of optimistic kind of moving forward when it comes to the education system, when it comes to like racial equality. Because I think of like a situation like maybe like George Floyd, where, you know, I kind of like wonder uh, or kind of like the the pesses, like kind of the negative situation of, you know, what happens if maybe this is distorted in the future or, you know, kind of in the future when it's like in a history book and maybe people kind of misremember some of the facts or maybe they're teaching a more negative version of it or uh, kind of. Uh, further away from like the actual truth are you you know do you have like a different mindset are you optimistic about education do you have concerns uh you know what's your thought yeah as far as remembering the kind of this resurgent in civil rights movement in 50 or 100 years i try to think back on the 60s 50s you know emmett till when he when he was horribly murdered you know at a very young age and that happened in money mississippi uh for you know they call it smart talking to a white woman and he was just beat and killed by two grown men and i believe he was he was either 14 or 15 when that happened you know but right after they blame the victim they blame the mother um it's always it's always a blame game even in the civil rights movement they were all communists they were extremists but now when we talk about them we talk about them with reverence and honor for what they went through and what they did. And I feel like that's a lot of what's going on now. George Floyd, everybody wants to talk about the bad things he did or he was a criminal. You know, who cares? What happened was wrong, no matter what. And I think when they write that history, I think that's what, what will be written Um and I think about this new civil rights movement. Once we get further removed from it, we'll see it for what it is. But there's always going to be people during it that have that pushback. And that's part of the movement, you know, changing the way people think. So I, I believe I'm optimistic about what will be written in history. I do worry with some of the, you know, critical race theory being a buzzword. That kind of stuff bothers me. Certain books not wanting to be talked about. But it, that never works. When who knew what critical race theory was a year ago? Nobody. And now everybody talks about it. It's the same thing that happened with the riot. When you tell people not to talk about something, everybody's talking about it. So all these things where they try to censor history, it backfires almost like 99% of the time and people talk about it anyway. So I'm pretty optimistic. And then too, today it's harder to hide history. Uh, back in 1930, if the media didn't cover it, written media it was dead. And if politicians didn't want to talk about it now, like look at us talking about stuff. Uh, it's much harder to censor the people. So I think we got that going for us. <laughs> no, I'm definitely, you know, happy to kind of end it on a positive note and, you know, really just excited that kind of your positive outlook on kind of the, uh, you know, the history moving forward with education. 
and definitely looking forward to you know the updates on these historical markers and kind of what you're doing with the uh, different education systems you know in Grayson County and Sherman County. Uh, no, no, really just excited to hear about all of it. So honestly, wanted to thank you again, Melissa, for not just being able to come on here and talk about your own kind of historical background, but kind of what you're doing for these historical markers and bringing more eyeballs and knowledge of the Sherman riots of 1930s. Uh, you know, I'm really excited to see where that goes. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. We got, you know, we just got our third approval from the Texas Historical Commission. So we finally took a year and a half, which normally doesn't take so long, but we got all three approvals. So we are we are seeing an end in sight. We're still going to have to deal with marker wording and placement at the courthouse and then an unveiling ceremony. But, you know, a year and a half, I didn't know if we were going to get here. So uh, it, I'm positive about the future. And, you know, anybody that wants to talk about history or these Texas historical markers are this is a really cool way to talk about history and learn about history. They're, they're on a website. So if you see a need in your community, you know, just I think people people can make a big change and not realize it. I mean, I didn't. I've never done anything before. I had just got my degree and I've never done a marker before. So, and look where we're at. So you don't got to be an expert when you start because I certainly was not. <laughs> no, I'm definitely, you know, excited to see where that goes. And, you know, I think it's a huge, uh, you know, huge statement for anyone else that wants to make a change in their local community, whether it's creating historical markers, bringing awareness to any type of community they think is important. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think this is going to be a great episode for anyone looking to make a change in their local communities. So I wanted to, you know, thank you again, Melissa. Yeah, thank you. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask Podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.